Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Open up to Luke chapter 22, and please stand with me as I read our passage for the, our text this morning. Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 71. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, but Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them, and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things about him, blaspheming. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his mouth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. It's Thursday night and Judas' work as the son of perdition is... Now completed. Jesus is arrested. He's brought to the house of the high priest. The high priest is called to be the intercessor between God and Israel. And his house is now the jail cell for the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. We learn also in verse 54 that... Through the events of Jesus' arrest and relocation, Peter's following along. But he's not just following along. He's following along, slinking along, perhaps to avoid capture at, it says, a distance. The apostle Peter, you remember earlier in the day, said, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Same day he said that to Jesus. 
And then Jesus prophesied what Peter would actually do. I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. Three times people from this gathering in the courtyard of the high priest's house recognize Peter and insist to Peter, you're one of his men, aren't you? You know him. You are one of his followers, right? And three times he faces their accusations with outright lies. Right? Peter is lying. Woman, I do not know him. Man, I am not. Or woman, I am not. And man, I do not know what you are talking about. I don't even know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? It's clear that Peter is not ready either to go to prison or to go to death with Jesus. So far as, as you know... He, He is ready for this. He is ready to deny that he knows Jesus. He is ready to deny any association with him. And, and it seems clear to me that there's a progression in the text to this point. Step one is, is, is Peter being proud. Just his proud self-reliance. Right? He says he... Uh, that statement, I'm ready to go to prison and to death. Proud self-confidence when he exclaimed that. And then we see next his neglect of prayer and to follow these explicit commands of Jesus. Jesus told the disciples to do something, pray that you might not enter into temptation. He didn't do that. Instead, what did he do? He slept. And then step three, there's his indecision. There's, he fights with the sword, and then he slinks at a distance, right? One minute he's right up front, he's, he's being overzealous. The next minute he's slinking in the background, doing nothing. So he's, you know, one minute he's sinfully aggressive, the next minute he's sinfully passive, denying what he said he would do. And then step four, he's hanging with unbelievers. That's what he's doing in hanging in this court of the chief priest. Right? Those servants show no faith. They show no concern for Jesus, and it appears that they only intend to uncover his followers. You were with him too, this scoundrel. That's sort of the subtext here. Right? You were one of them, not one of us. Right? One of them too. And so... He's hanging out in this courtyard amongst these unbelievers. And then step five, it, it's consummated, right? It comes to full, this progression comes to its full destination. He denies his relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the fruit of the previous four steps, beginning with one little prideful boast that he was ready. Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready to go with you. It's hard for us to even recognize that first step as anything other than Peter just being Peter, as it actually being a part of his faith. We see it as like, man, that's Peter, that's, that's faith. He's like, he's ready, but it's pride. He overestimates himself. 
And Jesus obviously has that view of what Peter said because he doesn't say, Peter, yeah, indeed, that's true. You're going to be with me. You're going to da-da-da-da-da, you know? No, he says he gives a triple, a, a, a prophecy of triple denial. You're going to deny me three times. Peter has entered into temptation. Peter has entered into temptation. Ryle, reflecting on Peter's denial, writes, Let us beware of the beginnings of backsliding, however small. And then positively says, The Christian who keeps his heart diligently in little things shall be kept from great faults. Right? That's why I prayed what I prayed for myself and for us earlier in the pastoral prayer, that we would be diligent to examine ourselves, to root out those little things. Now, strikingly, the Gospel of Luke adds a detail that none of the other Gospels record. And so after the prophesied rooster crows, uh, Jesus turned, it says, and looked at Peter. With that look, those Gazing eyes of of his Lord, Peter remembers the prophecy before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Think, think for a moment of that eye contact. Think of the holy rebuke that that would be without a word. The rooster crows, Jesus turns and looks, meets his eyes. I think we can think of, we can all think of times when all it took from our parents or from our friends was a look without words and then the conviction just floods over you right the conviction comes into your heart into your mind and you're like oh. and that holds true in many situations right i mean uh, during the the pain of of losing a loved one, just the kind and sad looks of others strengthens us. Just a look, just a, a sympathetic look. And it is a tr- it's true for rebukes. The, the one we love looks quizzically at us when caught red-handed in sin. And conviction floods over us. How much more, how much more when it's the Savior of the world Arrested after sweating blood, looking upon a beloved man who denied three times that he even knew him. Judas betrayed Jesus without words and received words of rebuke. Peter denies Jesus with many words and receives a look. The response of Peter, the response of Peter is the right response, the beginning of the right response. He goes out and weeps bitterly. He removes himself from that those scoffers that he surrounded himself with in that courtyard. He leaves. He goes out and he begins to weep bitterly. He leaves the courtyard. His eyes become that, that flood of tears. He's gasping for air. You've experienced this. His throat is tightening under the emotions that he's undergoing in the, in the intensity of his remorse. His boast, his boast just hours before has not quite played out like he foresaw. 
And he recorded for all of the church through all of the ages in the eternal word of God, Peter denied Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter. Next thing we read of, of Peter in Luke's gospel, think of this, is when he stoops to look into the tomb of his dead Savior. And he only sees linen wrappings, and he wonders about it. That's the next we read of, Peter. He denies, he goes out weeping bitterly, and the next thing is him running to the tomb to look into it, to see his dead Savior. And this needs, this needs to be said from the example of Peter, The sins of believers can be terrible. The sins of believers can be terrible. The sins of believers are the same sins committed by unbelievers. There are certain parallels between the betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter, aren't there? But the difference lies in their response to their sins. Judas and Peter are both, I would imagine, remorseful. But only one repents and is restored by Jesus Christ. Judas, think of this, Judas' conscience gnaws at him and leads him to silence it through self-murder. Peter's conscience gnaws at him and leads him to silence it through returning to his Savior. Two days later, he's marveling at Jesus' resurrection, meditating on all that Jesus had done. Right? Judas' life ends, but Peter's life just begins at that point. And, and he goes out into the world as the apostle who denied Jesus Christ, who abandoned him at the worst point. And that made him a better apostle. A better preacher, a better counselor, a better husband. The Apostle Peter. This is also true. So the sins, you know, the the sins of believers can be terrible. Terrible. But this is also true. Christians repent. Christians repent. The Apostle Paul had his, his heinous sins. And knew enough about himself to know that he was the chief of sinners, right? He repents, he regrets, and repents. The Apostle John knew enough of himself that, that he knew that if he said he had no sin, he was a liar. That's what he knew about himself. Christians sin and Christians repent. Luther knew that when he wrote the first of the 95 Theses, right? You remember that. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Spouses need to know this, even wives. Co-workers need to know this. Church members need to know this. Church officers need to know this. It is our response to sin that shows us whether or not the grace of God is active in our hearts and minds. What is extraordinary to me in thinking through the life of the Apostle Peter is that even after his his very 
His very public restoration by Jesus, which we read about in John chapter 20, right? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? You know I do. What is extraordinary to me is that we do not read of any of the other apostles dogging Peter. Paul does down the road on a different matter, right? But not this one. He does down the road when he's, he's separating himself from Gentiles. He rebukes him to his face. But not on this matter of his most heinous sin, right? Even, even after Jesus publicly restores Peter, it would be our tendency, right, to doubt him, to question his repentance, to prefer John to him. I'm going to go with John this time, you know, um, Peter. Jesus loved him, and he didn't, he didn't deny you. It would be our tendency to decide that due to the nature of his particular sin, we, he could no longer be a pillar of the church, a leader among equals. Yet that is not what we see from the apostles. He sins terribly, he repents vigorously, he is restored graciously, and then he leads powerfully. No doubt their acceptance of Peter is a sign of the maturity of the other apostles. A sign that they knew they were sinners in need of the very grace of God. A sign that they understood Christians sin and Christians repent. Now if there had not been repentance and faith and restoration by Christ, the apostles would have been foolish to follow Peter. Foolish. If he had continued to deny he knew Jesus... The unbelieving Judas was replaced by another apostle. The sinning and repentant Peter was understood to be a pillar of the church. This must have been hard for the other apostles. Though they had fled during Jesus' crucifixion, we do not read of their denial of Christ. Forgiving and trusting Peter must have been hard as it is When there is any sin between a husband and wife, between friends, between church members, between parents and children, between siblings. But we have to remember what we see in Peter. Christians sin and Christians repent. How terrible it would have been for Jesus to publicly restore Peter only to have the other apostles shun him. It would have been the apostles forbidding repentance, shunning forgiveness, setting themselves against it. It would have been the apostles founding the church upon their own self-righteous pride rather than on the very grace of a satisfied God. It would have been them unwilling to love sinners as the very Son of God was proving with Peter. Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus looks at Peter, a gaze of both rebuke, and of course it was also pity. Meanwhile, verse 63, the men who are holding Jesus mock, beat, blindfold, and blaspheme Jesus. 
The lowest point of Jesus' humiliation as the Son of Man is approaching, and we are on a rapid descent downward at this point. Mere men are using their created fists to strike the face of the eternal God-man. They break his skin and the blood begins to soak his clothing in the ground. Mere men are playing a game with the one, the only one who can atone for their sins. They blindfold him and say, prophesy, who's the one who hit you? In verse 65, they do not simply stop with this game. They just blaspheme Jesus to his face. Again, there is a contrast here. Peter denied Jesus with words. A far cry from blasphemies and strikes to his face. We do not read of their remorse and repentance as we do of Peter's remorse and bitter weeping. In the face of all, all of this, Jesus is silent as is prophesied by Isaiah several hundred years before. His humiliation for your salvation has to pass through some very low valleys, very humiliating valleys. Night turns to day, and Jesus is going to be passed from one authority to the next. The eternal Son of God, vested with, with his Father's authority, is going to be handed from one petty earthly authority to the next. In this first instance, Jesus comes before the council of elders, the Sanhedrin, and they get right to the point. They make a demand of him. Is their demands given in a mocking or a genuine tone? This is one of the passages especially with Pilate, where you you wish you knew the tone at which these things were said? Are they angry or smiling as they say it? Are you the son of God? You know? Are they fearful or joyful? Now Now that Jesus has fallen into their hands, they may be a little giddy. They're excited to ask him these questions, anticipating it, finally, ha ha, you know? Obviously, they are not genuine. If you are the Christ, tell us. If you are the Christ, just tell us. Zacharias has testified regarding the forerunner of the Messiah. A virgin has given birth. The angels have sung of the coming Savior. Jesus Christ has been preaching of the coming of the kingdom of God, saying it's in him. Miracle after miracle has been performed. Prophecy after prophecy has been fulfilled. And the... The blind, that is what they would have to be, have to hear it from Jesus again. If you are the Christ, tell us. Jesus knows their hardness of heart and knows that if he, if he says he is, they are not going to believe him. But they will accuse him of blasphemy. So how does he answer? He purposely makes his enemies angry. He provokes them. He throws fuel on the fire. 
right? If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask a question, you will not answer. That's part one of his answer. You will not believe if I say yes, and you will not be taught if I ask you a question. The fact of the matter is, he has repeatedly told them throughout his life, and he has repeatedly asked them questions for which they have no answers. To do so again, to do so again is going to have the same result as every time before. But at this point, towards, we come to the next part of the answer. And what he's saying is things are not as they appear. Things are not as they appear. He's weak. He's bleeding. He's the object of mockery. And all of that has led to the Sanhedrin's courage, to their current courage in speaking to Jesus Christ in this matter. But what is coming for Jesus is what is true of him, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. What is true of Jesus is that he will be in session, occupying the seat of honor and power and reigning activity to the right hand of the Father Almighty. And as the Creed says, from there, from that position, he will come to judge the living and the dead. From his session reigning as the resurrected God-man. And all of this is wrapped up in Jesus' reply to their demand that he tell them he was the Christ. They, They pick this up in what he has said because in response they say, Are you the Son of God then? Are you the Son of God then? This time without any hesitation, Jesus answered, You have said, or yes I am. He affirms it. He has told them. He has testified in many indirect ways. He has told them without question who he, who he is. Before Abraham was, I am, he has said to them. And their response is unbelief. Verse 71 is not them accepting what he has said. When they say, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his mouth. When they say that, they are saying, we have enough testimony to sentence this man to death. We have enough evidence to proceed against this man. It says so in the book of church order. We don't need anything else, they are saying. And they pass him on to the next authority. Now, what do we do with this? What is, I find that the trial of Jesus Christ is one of the hardest passages to apply. Uh, because, one, because it's hard to know tone. It's hard to know the interaction. Um, two, because, because the responses of Jesus need much meditation and thought. And, and so it's been hard for me even to make applications to myself as I've read this. But, but here are some applications from this. The pride of man is, is astonishing. 
I mean, that's what I take away from the trial of Jesus Christ. The pride of man is astonishingly deep. Man has arrested God. Man has led him away to be interrogated. Man has led God away to be interrogated and questioned, right? And not only led away quickly to be interrogated and questioned, but quickly condemned, very quickly condemned. And this is going to be an overarching theme through the next chapter of Luke. Pilate and Herod are going to add their pride to the pride of the Jews, the pride of the Sanhedrin. Secondly, the humility of God, the humility of the God-man is astonishing as well. He has allowed his arrest. He has allowed his interrogation. He has allowed his condemnation by mere men. I mean, think on that. Think of when Peter thrusts the the sword and cuts off the ear, and Jesus responds, you know, I have many legions of angels that would do my bidding. But here he is being condemned by mere men, all for your salvation. And so the humiliation of Jesus Christ will be a theme up until his resurrection when he goes to be seated to the right hand of the Father. I mean, who is a God like this God? Who is a God like this God? Humble, dying, loving mankind. A mankind that is intent on killing him and has been intent on killing him since the garden. Three, uh, remember Jesus' actions in light of Hebrews 12.2. He is the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He, Jesus, despises the things that are happening to him. He despises the shame. Rightly so, but in the midst of these mock trials, he mentions his session at the right hand of God, and there he is now. That that was the joy that was set before him. He knew that he would be resurrected to be seated at the right hand of his father and to be honored there by his father. Right, victorious over death, ever to appear as the victoring or the conquering victor over sin. And then lastly, this last question here, are you the son of God then? And he's, he, he affirms, right? Yes, I am. You've said so. It is as you say. Yes, I am. Um, through your life and the trials you face, you will ask similar questions of God about his son. In your prayers, perhaps, you will say, are you the son of God? And when you don't get relief, you will be tempted to answer that question, no, he's not. Why have you forgotten me? Right? But remember this answer. Remember his answer. Yes, I am. His testimony is true. He himself has said it. So when uh, you question, take his answer as the truth. Right? And live accordingly. It is objective truth. And if you, 
if you have to stir up the right subjective emotional response to Jesus based upon your ever-fluxing experience, then there will be times you say, no, he's not the Son of God. And there will be other times where you say, yes, he is, and maybe he's half the Son of God, or maybe he has power. Maybe he doesn't, because your emotions are going to be whipped around like that as well. But Jesus Christ said of himself, yes, I am the Son of God. And that's what you have to remember when, when God's pushing his winds at you when he is pushing against you for your good, you have to remember that. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would, you would cause us to remember the, the sin of Peter, these denials, and the progress that led to it, and so that we would be diligent in examining ourselves. I pray that we would also remember the sweet, gracious, powerful restoration of Peter by Jesus. And I pray that we would remember, we would remember Jesus' words here, that we would accept them as true testimony from you. And that we would remember that that Jesus is now seated to your right hand, reigning over all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.